This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship, Elite Politics and the Decline of Great Powers by Richard Lockman. The extent and irreversibility of U.S. decline is becoming ever more obvious as America loses war after war and as one industry after another loses its technological edge. In First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship, Lockman explains why the United States will find it impossible to retain global dominance. He contrasts America's relatively brief period of hegemony with the Netherlands' similarly short premacy and Britain's far longer era of leadership. Decline in those cases was not inevitable and did not respond to global capitalist cycles. It was the product of the success elites had in grabbing control of resources and governmental powers. In this process, not only are ordinary people harmed, but capitalists become increasingly unable to coordinate their interests as a class. They fail to adopt policies and make the investments necessary to counter economic and geopolitical competitors elsewhere in the world. Following this model, Lockman traces the transformation of U.S. politics from an era of elite consensus to its present-day condition of paralysis and plunder, explaining the paradox of an American military with an unprecedented technological edge unable to subdue even the weakest enemies, and the consequences of finance's cannibalization of the economy. First-class passengers on a sinking ship— Elite Politics and the Decline of Great Powers by Richard Lockman. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Philly. On Saturday, I hosted a live dig in Cambridge, Mass. for Bernie 2020 with Bhaskar Sankara and Alex Press in front of a crowd that was full of really smart people who asked really great questions. I'm running that Cambridge show today as a dig extra, what I used to call a diglet once upon a time. Thank you to Harvard for Bernie for putting this show together, and I'll be posting my interview with Kianga Yamada-Taylor on her book, Race for Profit, later this week. It is really good. Also, The Dig is going back to Massachusetts for Bernie 2020 this Sunday, 11 a.m., with Brianna Joy Gray and Michael Brooks. It is a triple pod crossover canvas kickoff at International Village, which is located at 1155 Tremont Street in Boston. Come listen and then join us knocking on doors. Also, I have a bunch of upcoming events for my book, All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. Coming up really soon is DC at Solid State Books in conversation with Dara Lind on February 26th, and then again on February 27th at Metro DC DSA's Socialist Night School. And then on February 28th in Baltimore, 
at Red Emma's in conversation with Christy Thornton. Then, Wednesday, March 4th, at Trident Books in Boston, 7 p.m., in conversation with Stephanie DeGoyer. And then, I'm off to New Orleans, Houston, McAllen, San Antonio, Dallas, and Austin between March 11th and March 20th. I'll keep my pitch for your support short and sweet for this special episode. You know that we need and love your support at patreon.com slash the dig. So if you haven't done so yet, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Jacobin assistant editor Alex Press and Jacobin founding editor and publisher Baskar Sankara. Alex Press and Baskar Sankara, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so normally I spend like a really long time preparing for each episode. I often read a book and take thousands of words of, of notes, but this time I just have like a few pages ahead of me, but uh, I'm just going to try to do the kind of riffing with my friends thing more that other podcasts do. Am, am I doing all right? Is that... Yeah, does. <laughs> I mean, you don't listen to that podcast, Alex. That's so. true. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, you, you go on them occasionally. Occasionally. Yeah. Um, well, let's start with just like what's happening right now as we speak with results in Nevada coming out and pointing to a potentially massive Bernie win. And I do want Jacob to inter- interrupt this event if more decisive results come out while we're up here. Um but like this amazing thing with Bernie being the undisputed front runner and Bloomberg's near immediate emergence as this like mm-hmm. the main centrist opponent, which like immediately overshadowed Buttigieg's big moment, Klobuchar's small big moment. <laughs> like every there's so much to talk about, but just stepping back, I'm having so many feelings every minute. There's a person who was defending democratic socialism on national TV last Wednesday, who's the undisputed frontrunner to become the presidential, the democratic nominee for president and then defeat Donald Trump. How did we get here? How are you feeling? Um, why is this moment happening now? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really big question. Uh, I, um, but, you know, I, I think that Part of it, not to fall into right away minute two of the podcast being a dogmatic Marxist, but um, <laughs> but there is a core uh, antagonism here in any society that's based on class, that's based on gross inequalities. If you have a small group of people that have all the power and wealth and the rest of the people don't have power and wealth and autonomy and things are only going to get worse, it's going to create some sort of uh, reaction. And I think you see that bubbling over. Uh, in every sphere of society, you, you've seen this bubbling over into um, the huge social movements we had um, in different forms in Occupy and the Wisconsin Uprising and Black Lives Matter. So you're seeing um, this manifestation everywhere. Uh, the only thing is, it's hard to fight back because the playing field is slanted against us. Um, you need your grocery money 
more than your boss needs your individual contribution to the labor process. So it's much easier for your boss to say, you know, um, F off, I don't need you, than for you to say that to your boss. Collective action is really difficult. Um, and I think that's, that's the underlying force. And then besides that, I think we have to admit that there's something special about Bernie Sanders. He's been able to take all these grievances in society, all these individual kind of policy preferences, if you want to use that language, uh, for Medicare for all, for a job This is therapy. weeds. This is the weeds. Exactly. Yeah. I actually have been listening to that podcast. It's not that bad. Matt Iglesias, you know, he's coming around yeah. to Bernie, so I'm coming around yeah. to Matt Daryl Lynn's yeah. great. Daryl Lynn um, is on. I'm a Daryl Lynn fan. Um, this is a slippery slope. Um, <laughs> we're taking, we're occupying the Center for American Progress with Matt Iglesias. Um, and, you know, Nara Tandon, if you want to keep that Indian leadership, you know, I'm there. I'm ready. I'm ready to step in. Uh, I have a similarly obnoxious Twitter presence. Um, but, but I think there is something special about Sanders, the way he's been able to take these grievances and just simplify things and just be, be able to create a, a narrative to people that says, you know, listen, you're working hard, you're trying your best, and it's not your fault. And it's not the fault of, of minorities or immigrants either. It's a fault of millionaires and billionaires. And that resonates with people because it's pretty much a rough, rough you know, uh, approximation of reality. Yeah, I think I would just add to that um, an emphasis on what Bosker was saying in the second part here, which is that it's not enough that there's mass inequality, that there's immense suffering, that healthcare costs are skyrocketing. There actually has to, you know, that's one part of the equation, right? And the other part is having organization and actually a way to change people's sense of the possible, right? Um, and so I think what's unique about Sanders is really that second part. For everyone, I'm sure, in the room who's been canvassing, you know, it's not about telling someone that they're they're suffering, that they don't make enough money. Everyone already knows that about their own lives. But it's about getting a sense of possibility for changing that. And I think, to Bosker's point, you know, the Sanders campaign has provided this sort of cohering force around how do we actually talk about the changes we need in the world um, in a way that I think, you know, the Occupy movement, various things over the past 10 years have been building this critique um, in the United States, but there hasn't been this coherent kind of solution put forward politically at the political level. Um, and so I think that, you know, explains some of this like incredible energy that you see around the campaign. It's people who've been searching for an outlet towards changing this country. Seth Ackerman had a really interesting argument about why Bernie is resonating so much the other day that hadn't quite occurred to me the way he phrased it, which is that basically like what Bernie is arguing for is what the Democratic electorate has sort of come to expect from their politicians, even if they've been failed by those same Democratic politicians, so that when the Democratic establishment tries to paint Bernie as extreme and radical, they can't really do that because the Democratic Party has always claimed to be for health care and for workers and for good jobs. It's an ironic situation. Right. He's like calling their bluff yeah. in a sense yeah. of saying, well, OK, I am going to build the party of the workers. I am going to help us all get health care. And, you know, what Democrat in the right mind is willing to say, actually, we were never for those things. We we just were presenting that because we knew we would never be pushed towards doing it. Um, so, yeah, I think Seth is right on the irony of the Bernie surge. Um, he's building the party the Democrats have always projected. And what do you all make of the centrist being in disarray, which has obviously been in, like one of the more like pleasant parts of 
this whole e- e- experience just like one popping up, the other one, and then them going after each other, and like Klobuchar and Buttigieg like destroying each other in the last debate, and everyone destroying Bloomberg. Is this like what is this? Why are they in 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 disarray? Is it relate to me? It seems like it has to be related to the fact that they like have no that their ideology and political program is in disarray. Like they don't know, they don't know who they want because they don't know what they want. Well, I think that an apolitical level, I just feel bad for Biden, right? Because <laughs> actually um, it's a little bit confusing for us because we've all lived through 2016 and 2008, two very heavily contested primaries, but contested primaries are not the norm. Uh, before that, the nearest can really, um, I guess 92 was contested too, um, but 84 was like a pitched ideological contested primary um, with, with Ted Kennedy. Uh, there was these brief insurgencies and the Jackson campaign and so on. But um, in general, uh, the Democratic establishment, uh, Democratic centrists have been able to cohere around a candidate. And this time, they just refuse to cohere around a candidate. And their solution to their crisis is just to add more candidates to the, to the fold. So I think sometimes we overstate the cohesion and discipline and just overall competence of our, our enemies. And, and one thing, obviously, I hate the Trump-Sanders comparisons, but one thing that, that Trump did in, in 2016 was uh, show how hollowed out these parties are and how unable they are to stop insurgencies. If you think of 2008... And the Democratic Party, too, is insurgency. You, you would see that as, as, you know, the victory of an insurgent. Obviously, not with the politics we want, but. It's a wonderful collective action problem, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> just to watch <laughs> Klobuchar and Pete and Bloomberg just completely, you know, they're all trying to fit through the doorframe at the same time. And they're just completely bumping up <laughs> against the, you know, it's, it's almost, yeah, not to like depoliticize. I mean, like, there are actual structural reasons, which I think you're referring to about like the party doesn't actually know what it wants. Um, but like on, neoliberalism is like ideologically exhausted. Sure, so, like, sure. And so when your project is just your own sort of like career and apparatus that you've built around you, it's very hard to sort of sacrifice that on behalf of a party when you when the party is no longer as coherent as it maybe once was. Maybe it, it never was quite um, as coherent as we project onto it. But I think um, it's certainly fun to watch. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the Bloomberg like massacre that was happening the other day it was, you know, it was like critical support for Amy Klobuchar on <laughs> and Warren did, And Warren did a great job. Yes. But David, and this is the First and only time I'll ever say this in my right David in my life. David Brooks was correct in his the first half of his recent column where he said basically like Warren did a great job demolishing Bloomberg, but it will only accrue to Sanders's benefit ultimately. Like like she, he need, Sand, Bernie needed someone to go after Bloomberg, and she did a great job. <laughs> David Brooks was a socialist in 1983. What? Uh, yeah, I once I once met him actually. And he was just like, oh, I like Jack. It reminds me of the new masses. And I'm like, David Brooks, what do you know about the new masses? And he's like, oh, I love Michael Gold. He quoted uh, the end of like Jews Without Money, this, this famous book by Michael Gold. Everyone should read it. Uh, like verbatim. I was just like, who is this man? What's wow. going on? And uh, yeah, it apparently is real. I thought it was just a fever dream. That I had, but... um, I mean, one of the most amazing parts about this like incoherent of their, their their strategy and their impo- just like their inability to figure out a way to stop Bernie is 
Bloomberg, who has so much money, and if he was simply able to put his own, like, the interests of his class ahead of his own personal ego and interests, he could put a shit ton of money behind Buttigieg or Biden or whichever one. He, he, he could put a flag in the ground and say, with his money and say, this is the person we're getting behind. But instead, he's putting his own ego and interests ahead of the interests of his class and fucking everything up. It's great. Yeah. I mean, Bloomberg makes me a bit, I, I feel like compared to some of my coworkers or whatnot, I'm a bit more nervous about yeah. what the future looks like because it's so unprecedented. Let's not get complacent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I even, you know, this afternoon was staring at the polls and saying, you know, I don't trust the polls at all. Maybe, maybe it won't be a victory. It's looking very good. That's good. But um, yeah, I don't sort of, um, we've never seen an infusion of money like that. Um, into a race in the United States. And so I, you know, I'm just not quite sure that we can laugh about it yet. Um, but I mean, it, the the interesting thing that Bloomberg, I mean, you titled the event Bernie versus the billionaires. And it is interesting that Bloomberg then presents this almost like, you know, made to order like dream opponent for Sanders to rail against. Um, I mean, perfect foil. Um, and I think there's, you know, it's, it's been interesting talking to people and trying to even convey a sense of how much money Bloomberg has. I think this is like when we talk about billions of dollars, often it's it's better to like try to translate that into something concrete and say, you know, there's some something we actually ran an article on this. It was like 161 million people, um, sort of the bottom 161 million people in the United States have um, one sixth of Bloomberg's wealth. Um, and so like the amount of money we're talking that it's not even making a dent in his fortune, this race, um, I think it, it helps illustrate interest, right? Yeah. It helps illustrate all the things that we think people actually, um, should have sort of displayed openly instead of be hidden, which is that billionaires actually are under the current system free and without any scarcity, scarcity able to, um, do as they please. And that's. Yeah, something and we a billionaire oppose. who in, endorsed George W. Bush for president at the RNC in New York in 2004. Like, what does that say? I mean, we're talking about how like vul- like vulnerable the Democratic Party is to to Bernie's insurgency, but it's also vulnerable to a Republican, also a billionaire walking in and basically buying his way into second place. And it is like we've ne- like you said, Alex, we've never seen anything close to this amount of money being spent. And I'm sure all those like twisted. Uh, positivist social scientists who run like natural natural experiments in uh, in third world countries are like salivating over you know the data set they're going to get out of this. But um, I mean, ho- yeah, hopefully it fails. But I, I think one important thing to remember is that democratic capitalism in most countries around the world that have those the systems haven't hasn't actually been able to prevent the left from getting into power. It's pretty normal for someone with uh, social democratic views or a social democratic party even to get into power somewhere. Um, what's difficult is actually wielding power and carrying out your program. Like that base of the capital system means that, you know, once we are in power, um, the radio won't be able to see the scare quotes, but you know, um, scare quote. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, we'll be reliant on 
taxing profitable companies. We're going to have to maintain some sort of base level profitability. We're going to have to make measures to prevent capital flight. We're going to have to do things to entice investments in certain areas. Like This is how our program will be um, undermined. Um, the power of capital and the fact that we're reliant and dependent on, on having profitable firms. But I think sometimes we think about this huge dilemma that's facing the left and how weak we are, and we think that they're going to be able to prevent us from winning an election. And to me, compared to what I used to think even like 18 months ago, it's not clear to me that there's any mechanism they could prevent us from winning an election. I think, obviously, carrying out our program is a completely different story. Yeah, I think that's totally right. The record, yeah. Yeah, so what, what, what should we be preparing for in terms of attacks between now and the end of the primary? Because there was this constant refrain until recently, like, oh, Bernie hasn't been vetted yet. You know, he's not electable, and we'll show how unelectable he is when he starts getting vetted. But is like if is the vetting started? Is it just people? Is it just the establishment media and politicians saying Bernie's unelectable? Just them saying that? Is that the vetting? Or what? Like what is the like what's what's going to happen? Are they going to do do anything? This Russia thing yesterday is that it? Like, I mean, I my view on this stuff is it's almost like shadow boxing. You know the way a lot of these conversations about the election work. You know, on the doors in New Hampshire. I got a lot of people who I think we're not saying this in bad faith. We're saying, you know, I like Sanders. I certainly didn't encounter anyone who hated Sanders. But so there were a lot of people who were like, I like Sanders, but I hear he just can't win. And so I don't give myself permission to vote for him um, because I'm thinking of some hypothetical other person and I don't want to jeopardize their preferences. Right. It, it's a complete, you know, illusion um, and I think the vetting and electability, you know, those conversations happen in very parallel ways um, in that the vetting itself is this sense of, um, you know, oh, just just you wait because you're you don't know what you're putting up. And the hope is to sort of people get people to not give themselves permission to actually um, express what they desire as far as policies and politicians. Um, I mean, the things we've seen from the vetting of the recent days would be like the Russia thing. I mean, him being on the side of the Sandinistas, um, him having a ho- another home, which again, all these are things that came out. And it's on a lake. Yeah. It's, it's, I love that he has a very Soviet, uh, <laughs> Daka. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of this, my memory serves me correct. Then I would say that all of this came up in 2016 too. So I'm not quite sure what we're meant to, I mean, Bernie has a lot of enemies, so I feel like it would have come out. Any yeah. big secrets? I do hope we see more of that Banya photo, though, from the Soviet Union trip when he's in the Russian bath, chilling. He looks so happy. I love happy Bernie photos from the 80s. Um, but, but I think that if you, just in the abstract, right, if a politician's been in the national spotlight um, since 2015, his name recognition is so high that in most polls, he has slightly higher name recognition. It's like, uh, 98 versus 97% of Americans know him compared to Biden, and Biden was the vice president. So, I mean, people already know him. He has very established levels of favorability and unfavorability. Um, I don't think that an additional few months of Republican oppo would make a difference. I think a, a lot of this stuff has already come out about Bernie, and nobody really cares about anything anymore. You know, they, 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 you know, I mean, this is, I mean, if, me and uh, or Alex 
uh, we're running for um, president. We got the Democratic nomination. We have 46% of the vote locked in. Uh, there's zero chance we get below 46%. And the question is, how do we get that extra 5%? And obviously, it's an uphill battle against an incumbent president. But Bernie has a particular pathway to winning, I think, in the upper Midwest. He may be, be competitive in, in some of the Sun Belt, even in places like Arizona. Uh, the polls look decent in North Carolina. Um, Florida might be tough. I don't know. I haven't looked. I, what know, about I'm Texas? Oh, yeah. maybe, we, maybe we can give Florida the Republicans and take Texas. Um, I think we have to wait a while for that. Yeah. I mean, that's AOC's uh, task in 2028. Uh, um, <laughs> but but I, I think that, that what we you know, have to say is that we can't fall into the trap. And this is going to be the main line being used against Bernie once he wins a nomination. It's going to be establishment Democrats saying the economy is going great. We can't run on the economy. So in other words, we can't run on the issues that Bernie's good at. What Bernie wants to talk about, we can't talk about. We're going to have to talk about other things. But if you look at the actual polling, Americans do say, yes, the economy is doing pretty good right now. But they also say, it's not working really well for me. And I think that divide is what we have to drive into. And we still have to run an uh, economics-focused uh, program. We can still run on something like more jobs, even if unemployment's low, because people don't like their existing jobs. Yeah. People's um, actual like experience of the economy is not directly shaped by discrete economic indicators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I was that was an interjection that you could keep going. No, like, no, no, yeah. that was good. That was good. You, yeah. you, you know, I didn't, get wa- on, I didn't want to just like get, shut you down. Get on the mic, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, my, my, my trying to maintain yeah. control of this yeah, podcast. Yeah. Um, well, you said that there's like no nothing really potentially that they can do to stop us, which leads me to another question that we were discussing the other day, which is, uh, is there any, does that mean that there's nothing they can do from, to stop us from taking over the Democratic Party, which I know is like a very controversial point on the socialist left, certain kind of more or- orthodox analyses, which is, suggests we don't want to do that. But if there's really no there there, like if the party is really just a shell, then why shouldn't we take over the Democratic Party? Or at least maybe we can do other stuff to keep growing DSA. But if Bernie wins the presidency, he becomes the leader of the Democratic Party officially and gets to name the head of the DNC and everything. Um, so so I, I would say, well, my training tells me no. Um, well, I, I think there's two things. One is we sometimes overstate the structure and coherence of the Democratic uh, Party. We do in many ways have something closer to a no-party system than a two-party system. Uh, and this is something that Seth Ackerman gets in in his, his Jackman piece from a couple years ago, a Blueprint for a New Party gets into, which is that, you know, I, for example, have been a registered Democrat since my 18th birthday because I was registering in New York and I wanted to actually vote in competitive elections. I've spent most of the last 12 years just attacking, mostly to no effect, attacking <laughs> establishment Democratic <laughs> Party politicians and in, uh, I will admit, just because I've been in New York, I haven't been in a swing state, you know, I've never voted for a Democrat in a um, swing election. Um, I voted for Jill Stein in 2016, uh, you know, just because I met Jill Stein. She asked for my vote. 
I'm the other two I didn't meet, you know? You also defended uh, Bernie's on, honor vis- against Jill Stein's attacks at uh, the 2016 DNC event that I saw you at. Oh, yeah, that's true. But either way, you know, uh, Jill Stein. And also, I like to see my vote. I like to look at my, my little town that I'm registered in and be like, oh, you know, there's been 12 votes in that town for the Socialist Workers Party. Uh, I was one of them, you know? Um, so, so, you know, uh, but... I guess, so I guess the, the thing is, is twofold. One is they can't stop us from running in um, primaries and taking over their ballot line, but there's also no real structure there. Any left advance, historically, has been done with a coherent party, a party rooted in labor, for instance, a party where in the old, like even the UK Labor Party, like one of the worst of the social democratic parties, um, when in the 40s and 50s, there used to be labor ward captains, kind of captains in every big tenement building. There would be a labor person uh, in the building. If you had a problem and you needed to talk with your MP, you would go to your, uh, your, your local uh, labor precinct head and you'd be able to. It, it's kind of like, I guess Philly has a little bit of this with the, with the fact where the Democratic Party actually functions like a, like a party, but it's really not uh, like that in other places. So maybe, how do we create, in other words, uh, a party uh, within a party? How do we uh, create a degree of coherence. So what if we take DSA, but instead of just endorsing independent candidates that fit our ideological profile, we say if you're going to be endorsed by DSA, you have to take your money only from DSA and from labor unions and from you know community groups and whatnot. You can't take your money from other sources and eventually form some sort of parliamentary block within our body. So for example, in Chicago, we have six out of the uh, 50 uh, members of Chicago City Council are DSA members, and they generally vote together. Maybe not on every issue, but on core issues, let's say in the, in the U.S. Congress, of war and peace, of you know, voting on the budget, on health care, whatnot, there would be some sort of discipline there. So maybe that's the middle ground, and um, I, I think that's probably a better route in the short term and medium term even than pursuing some sort of break with the Democratic uh, Party. No, I'll let, I'll let Bosker just take that. Yeah, so I mean, the answer is more like, like yes, take over the Democratic Party, but that's uh, insufficient. And since we don't have a party system at all, really, to build a shadow like party that actually functions like yeah. a party behind it. I mean, it just raises the question, take over what and toward yeah. what end, right? Yeah. And so Bosker is laying out, you know, what that would look like to actually take something over and to actually have some sort of disciplinary muscle. Um, I think the Chicago example is a really good one um, because those um, representatives on uh, on the city council um, or aldermen, as they call it in Chicago, um, you know, our Democrats, you know, for the most part are, you know, come from different backgrounds as far as community organizations, um, political traditions. Um, they're all operating as a minority within this broader city council. And yet they actually, you know, there have been real tensions that have come out even with them within their own party. You know, there have been tensions between the mayor, for example, or the, you know, certain establishment as, as um, issues come up, like the Chicago teachers strike, like housing um, shortages and affordable rent. You know, you actually see how in practice this, um, disciplinary group, which is not, you know, bound by, you know, no one's going to be kicked off the 
out of the six person sort of mini caucus um, necessarily. There's no you know bylaws or whatever, um, but there's an informal sort of discipline that's being developed there about you know, a sense of how do we actually strategically have a conversation around our goals and then move together as a force. Um, And I think on a broader scale, that might be what taking over the party looks like. Um, But I think just to speak of it abstractly um, is maybe not the most useful. And then, I mean, there are also just so many examples of that failing, right? So you have to be clear about what you actually mean by that. Though I will never apologize for supporting Ralph Nader in 2000. (laughs) Um, damn, you, you, you look good, man. You're older than I thought. Uh, I, was, I was 17. I worked really hard on the campaign. I could not vote. Um, no, but I, I, think, I think it is important to say uh, two things. Now, now, one of them is that we don't just want to take over the party for its own sake or create a new party for its own sake. We're trying to figure out how do we make this more than just a left populist, let's just get one person elected and hope that that uh, he or she will be able to cut through the, the red tape and, and enact change. And to do that, you need cadre. You need to train people. You need a coordination at, at, at local, state, and federal levels. You need the apparatus of an actual party, something approximating the parties that they have um, in Europe and, and in South America that have actually been able to make, um, make change. But I think the second thing we have to acknowledge is that Bernie Sanders and the Justice Democrats crowd are proponents of a model that's similar to the old DSA strategy of the 60s and 70s, which is realignment. And they seem to be making a lot of progress in their strategy. I come from a tradition of the left. You know, I joined the, the board of a, a journal called New Politics when I was 18 years old. And um, one of the first things I was taught my early years in the left was the old slogan, you know, no to the elephant, no to the ass, build a party of the working class. And, you know, that's not working out well for us. And the DSA strategy, which is what I laid out earlier, probably the mainstream of DSA, uh, this kind of mix of both, um, is mostly an abstract um, idea. Um, But in effect, what's actually been succeeding to some level is this running Justice Democrats campaign, uh, you know, candidates that just happen to ideologically identify as democratic uh, socialists. So I think we need to at least just keep our eyes open and uh, not be afraid to say, you know, um, either either side is wrong. And I imagine that that um, there will be roadblocks, but there'll be roadblocks once we're already in power. And I think the fact that we're going to do this without a political party will mean that it's going to be harder to actually enact the policy and change we want, but it won't prevent us from actually winning elections. I want to talk a little more about that, like, cart before the horse situation that we've found ourselves in. Like, I think typically in most places where left parties or people have candidates have come to power it's been on it's been thanks to the 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 formation of really strong left-wing political institutions and what we have here is potentially a president like potentially we're gonna have a left-wing president without those institutions in place so how do we kind of like use the sanders presidency if god willing he he wins to, to kind of reverse engineer that process. Obviously, it would be better to have the horse before the cart, but it's like too late, and this is a historic opportunity that we can't pass up. But like, what do we, how do we do it? It's a great question. I mean, and so the sort of slogan I learned uh, when I was first coming to the left, you know, this is that the Democratic Party is the graveyard of social movements, right? And so 
And I think often that is true historically. Um, and so we find ourselves, I mean, I'm the first to admit when I've been shown to be apparently quite wrong about things. And so, I mean, it's um, that Sanders has actually opened up space for um, working class reorganization um, on a mass scale. I think it's, um, we don't have a mass movement of the sort that we actually need. We're nowhere close to that as far as the labor movement goes. It's an extremely disorganized um country as far as working class politics go. Um, but it is true that Sanders is actually opening up space um, for that and in a way that, again, like I did not foresee um, being possible. Um, what it actually looks like to then say, okay, we find ourselves in this thing that, you know, most of us th thought was not possible and, and not sustainable. And certainly it's not easy to evoke discipline on someone when you don't have the muscle um, in your institutions to do that. Um, I think part of what's exciting about Sanders is that actually as if we have a president who's op who's sort of cheering on working class organizing, who, you know, whether it's he's shown it in the campaign, whether it's been sending his volunteers and his supporters to strike lines, to picket lines, whether it's the idea of him actually calling out bosses personally um, who are in disputes with their workers. I mean, this is a way that you actually can imagine that the idea of the Democratic Party is the graveyard of social movements. Is It's actually the exact opposite is what's going on with Sanders right now. Um, I see it all the time with workers who are organizing in their workplaces that actually Sanders provides a hook for them to be able to ta start talking about political issues with their coworkers, dealing with things on the job. Sanders, but you know, the only, the one thing a lot of people pay attention to is the presidential race as far as U.S. politics go. And so it's a shared frame of reference that then can actually come down from the macro down to the micro into, hey, you know, here's actually an issue of disrespect in our workplace. Um, and this is exactly what, you know, Sanders is arguing about. So why don't we talk about it, you know, on the interpersonal level in a workplace? Um, and so I think encouraging that sort of dynamic is exactly what needs to happen. And, you know, Sanders has, of course, policies that he's pushing for that would make these things easier um, as far as labor law reform, stuff like that. Um, but the reality at the end of the day is like it's it is going to take exactly everyone in this room who has been getting to know their comrades and their friends in their neighborhoods to actually keep doing that um, and actually keep building that power, knowing that you're going to have a president who's on your side, you know, it just makes it a little bit easier. Yeah, I mean, you're, th this macro to micro thing that you're talking about that's being made possible by just this historic campaign, like that opportunity is just an order of magnitude bigger if Bernie's in the White House in ways I can't even quite comprehend. Yeah, and also if, if civil society has been so hollowed out that trade unions are, are weaker than before, not only in their, their sheer total amount of members, but also in their mobilizational capacity, even organizations like churches and these other things are all hollowed out. Um, if the party machines are all gone, then even a group like DSA, as small as it is, you know, with, in the future, Sanders administration having 150, 200,000 members, you easily, in terms of the amount of people you can mobilize, become one of the most powerful groups in the United States. Um, and by extension, because of our... low bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but, but you know, uh, uh, yeah, but exactly. I think this is one interesting thing and it speaks to a particular moment and i think this is the case for us to think about this as a left populist moment but not to fetishize that and just to say okay the old forms of politics are dead but like alex was saying how do you use this opportunity to then work in reverse 
and actually rebuild um, some of these institutions of working class power that will last beyond an election. And so far, actually, Sanders, despite the really good things that the campaign has been doing, supporting, you know, timing up its events with, let's say, the Verizon workers strike in 2016 and, and, and other other instances of this, um, in general, hasn't done a very good job of doing. And I feel bad saying it here because Harris, like our revolution in this this area actually has has turned into a real force and has done a lot of good. But in a lot of parts of the country, um, it hasn't filled, lived up to its um, its promise. Yeah, no, this is really a model, our revolution, in a way that I don't know has been replicated very many other places. I was just going to add to Bosker's point, you know, as far as these, a small group being able to actually make a huge difference in the world. I mean, I'm sure I'm speak, preaching to the choir here, but when it comes to the left and the history of reforms, progress, whatever you want to call it um, in this country, it's often these minuscule numbers of people who, you know, it starts at the ones and twos, right? And so my favorite example of this is, um, you know, before the ILWU, the Longshoremen's Union on the West Coast existed, it was, there were about eight communists who were in the Longshore, who were Longshoremen when unionization was sort of first starting when struggles and strikes and and challenges to the boss and to the shape-up system they had on the docks there were getting started. And, you know, we think of the ILWU now, for those who know anything about it, as sort of like the most radical independent union that's still around in the United States. And if it hadn't been for that handful of people at the start who said, you know, let's from the beginning start building something here, no matter what the odds are, you know, we would we wouldn't have the ILWU. And so I just think it it's really important what Bosker is saying as far as like DSA or various other organizations, not just DSA, maybe tiny in number compared to this, the U.S. population. But what we see is that, I mean, and we're seeing it today in Nevada, no one else has committed people that actually want to build something and that are driven and passionate. And so a small group of people can actually work wonders um, and reveal just how weak everybody else is. Yeah, I this really became clear to me when I, I've been doing a lot of Bernie organizing in Rhode Island and we were bringing people up to New Hampshire and we brought up a bunch of buses, but before that we were just bringing up carpools. And the first time I brought a carpool up, I was like, oh, it's just like, like four cars, just 20 people. But when we pulled into that Manchester office, it was clear that us being there was like an extremely big deal that day, just 20 of us, that that was, that was the center of that canvas's attention. And, uh, and you're seeing that I think all over the Bernie campaign, we're talking about a, a massive volunteer operation compared to any other campaign, but it's still in absolute terms. Like, what's the total vol- people number of Bernie volunteers knocking door? We're still talking about just thousands of people, right? It's amazing. Um, well, we've been talking about, like, they can't stop us. That's great. But there is, like, one, there is, like, one situation, one, like, where they're potentially going to really try to fuck us, which is... The, the convention. And I assume that everyone, uh, many of you watched the debate on Wednesday and recall, were closely listening to uh, the final question and candidates' answers to it. And the final question was, should the person, if no one get, secures a majority of delegates, should the person with the plurality of delegates, the most delegates going into the convention, be the nominee? And every single candidate, except for Bernie Sanders, said no. So... How should we be thinking and preparing for for that? And in particular, is it seeming like what Liz Warren's 
idea of what she's doing is <laughs> not going to stop you. Um, <laughs> is hanging around in the race to potentially be chosen as the compromise unity candidate to bring everyone together. I mean, the one thing that makes me somewhat optimistic is that a lot of ordinary Democrats at the end of the day, um, like we talk about the establishment, but this is actually going to be a convention full of delegates, which are just like the most ordinary party, like kind of activists from all over the country. At the end of the day, they're extremely partisan and they want to beat Donald Trump. And I Part of me thinks that they're at the end of the day, they'll just be too chicken shit to pull the trigger and fuck Bernie, knowing that it'll guarantee Trump's election. But I don't, I don't know. What do you, what do you, how do you guys see it? Well, we just have to put you know numbers on the board. We we need if we have if we have a very slim polarity, then they won't. The maybe there there would be the case for the compromise candidate. I think we have to be very wary of a odd sort of math that's being pushed in some establishment media quarters. I meet the press two weeks in a row, put up numbers that have basically said. Well, the liberals, Sanders and Warren, have gotten X percentage, and the moderates have gotten X percentage, ignoring the fact that, for example, Sanders is the number two choice of Biden voters. And when Biden drops out, if he drops out, we're going to benefit more than other candidates. Most people don't think of themselves in these narrow ideological um Terms. So I, I, th- I actually I think that's saw the- today an exit poll from the Nevada caucuses that showed that Sanders had just slimly won among moderates. Um, so among the like 20 something percent of the voters surveyed who identified as moderates, they were plurality for Sanders. So, again, yeah, these terms make very little sense. Um, but go, go on. But, no, but I, I think that will give us that would give them the pretext to say, well, the Sanders Warren wing only has X percentage and the rest of us combined have X percentage uh, or Y percentage. Sorry, I was bad at math. You know? <laughs> yeah, I can't uh, help you on yeah, that. Sorry. Tough. I'm enumerate. Um, yeah. <laughs> Our variables. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think that'll be an opening. But honestly, I, I don't think it can be done. I think what they'll probably do is they'll ask for concessions in the platform. They'll try to shape the Sanders campaign. They'll try to um, pick his VP for him. Uh, they'll try to, once he's in power, turn him into something like a generic uh, Democrat. And this is similar to what the Republicans managed to do with, with Trump. Um, actually, I think that's a good thing because I think run-of-the-mill, give rich people more money through tax breaks is a lot less scary than the Bannon right. kind of deficit finance right populism. Um, yeah, if Trump had done like the wall and Medicare for all simultaneously, that we could be living be in scary. a yeah. or terrifying it took, moment. It could have yeah. took his support among black voters from 6% to like 16%, and for example. That might have been enough to, to, to win an election or win a re-election. So, you know, I think that, that there's those sorts of risks that we need to be wary of, but I, we can't really think about like how to... None of us know how a convention really operates, right? You know, like none of us just will just show up and Bernie will be president <laughs> or we'll be protesting outside. I actually I plan to be in, in Milwaukee. Uh, I, I, um, I, um, so I, 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 uh, I got a house in Milwaukee, but I, it's from someone who I don't think knows that the DNC is going on. So I'm very wary that like in three weeks they're going to be like, yeah, I can't give you this house for like. $90 a day. <laughs> but that will be $1,000 a day. <laughs> You've rented out a house already? Yeah, for Brand Cup, for the Jackman staff. Oh, that's great, yeah, because I was... Come, yeah. Okay, great. I'll uh, be we'll there, see, too. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I, uh, I just heard... Amazing. Woo! 
Amazing. Oh, thank you. All right. Yeah, with 10% of the precincts, we have Bernie with 41.5%. After realignment. After realignment. Um, followed by Biden with 18.6%. Followed by Buttigieg with 168 Followed by Warren with 108 um, She's either going to have to drop out before or after Super Tuesday, I think. Um, Klobuchar, 7.3. Steyer, 4.3. Gabbard, 0.1. And Sorry, somehow Tessie. Mayor Pete has the most elegance, though, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is anyone here planning on uh, going as a delegate? Is anyone running as a delegate in here? Oh, yes. Cool. Tatiana, you got selected? Nice. So did Thea. Yeah. My partner has also been selected as a delegate as of an hour ago. Um, <laughs> Um, so, oh yeah, so one thing that you brought up that is important is this like moderate, adding up all the moderates versus Bernie thing. And I think like the best way to realize how stupid this is, is just knocking on any actual voters doors. I mean, how many people, Alex, knocking on doors in New, in New Hampshire, did you find that like fit neatly within the ideological categories that the media t- typically presumes? Hmm. Probably zero, I would say. Yeah, I mean, people, everyone in this room probably knows, is well aware. People are pretty weird, right? Yes. I mean, everyone is really weird as far as their concerns and, and their sense of... My Marianne to Buttigieg voter was like yeah. a good example. So, so explain your Marianne to Buttigieg voter. She, she, it turned, she was actually a former Marianne staffer, she told me. And then she was like, oh, I'm pretty committed to someone. I was like, well, can I ask who? And she's like, uh, I think Mayor Pete's really speaking to me. And I was like, I really don't think... Marianne would like that very much. (laughs) But she was unconvincible. And yeah, and then I I tweeted about it. And then Marianne was in my mentions like an hour later, which was something. But but people are like, like, people are weird. Yeah. Which is nice on some level. Right. And it's just, I mean, this is why there's something remarkable as far as canvassing and organizing and how it works is that it actually is about sort of talking through these ideas with someone because there's just... I mean, my sense on the doors was people really want to talk about this stuff and they don't do it in their daily life. I mean, I'm sure you've all experienced this. I keep making jokes about it that I have a Bernie pin on my jacket and now it's just constant. You know, I get stopped like a dozen times a day by people who just want to talk about Bernie and talk about the election. I was on the phone with my dad before uh, this event, and some guy tried to start a conversation with me about my Bernie pin while I was on the phone. <laughs> and so, you know, I think people, there's a, it's just because people are not sort of ideologically coherent in the way that pundits sort of talk about them. It doesn't mean that, like, they can't be one to ideas that, you know, that we're pushing and that Sanders is pushing. Um, but as far as the actual consistency of punditry, I mean, yeah, they're just making things up in the clouds and trying their best to avoid actual voters generally. Did you have any particularly interesting canvassing experiences? There was, like, we were at the same canvassing site in, uh, was it in Amherst? Was that the name of the town? No, that was Plastow. where I was the next day, Plastow, New Hampshire, which is, like, sort of like just a suburb of Massachusetts, right? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> the gonna, entire state of Massachusetts. You're going to offend someone Sorry. in the audience. <laughs> yeah, no, we're trying to be... We're going to be pro, pro-Boston right okay, now. Okay, yeah, we're, we're, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and right across the street was a guy with a 
a sign in his yard that said union worker for Trump. Yeah. And you threatened to, to, to call the canvas off and spend the whole day try, attempting to talk to this person. Yeah. I was very tempted to just uh, avoid the car I was assigned and just walk across the street and say, do you know what you're doing to your class? Come on, we have to talk this through. But, uh, you know, I was forced not to do that. Though I did win a Trump voter to Sanders. Um, Someone on the doors. On, that was on your list. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, he was on the he was on the list because he had been a he was a classic had been a Sanders guy in the primary in 2016 and then voted for Trump in the general. Um, and all it talk was all it took was a brief little conversation for him to sort of come to an agreement that he'd at least like to see Sanders debate Trump and be up against him. And, and you explained yeah. to him that Sanders was Putin's true choice, not Donald Trump. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And he was That's like, really okay. important to the voters of Plastow. Yeah. Right. You know, Russians set back the cause of socialism like at least several decades. So Uh-oh. the least they could do is you know help us out a little bit this in our time of need. Wow. <laughs> this is the that's the comment that's going to be clipped. Right. <laughs> Jeez. Um, oh, I met I met one guy who was like a twenty six, twenty seven year old male who took a few bells rings on the bell to get him to the door, and he's like, "I really like Bernie. I'm going to vote for him the general. I'll definitely vote for him general." I'm like. You know, you're registered. You got to turn out and vote for him in the primary. He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll vote for him in the general. And I'm like, no, no, you have to. If you want to vote for him in the general, you have to turn out. But generally, I think that a lot of Democrats just like the field of Democrats in different ways. They have their preference, but they're much more positive on the field than we are. You know, we, we kind of ironically pick, like, who's the least odious, like, but... You know, we're trying to debate who's your set, you know, who's your least odious Democratic candidate. It's a level of a person, you know. Cory Booker seems like he wouldn't really piss you off if you just spent like eight to ten minutes with him, you know. Um, Mayor Pete definitely would piss you off um, in eight to ten minutes. But most, most Democrats are just pretty positive on the field. And I think that's one important thing for our messaging, especially, you know, we have to act like f- front runners, you know, act like we've been here before, act like we. We are actually representing the mainstream of the party because we we are representing the mainstream of the voters. Um, obviously, a very small minority of the of the um, pundits. Yeah, I mean, on the doors, you don't find that kind of like MSNBC perspective very often. I did knock one door. I was in uh, New Bedford all day and had great conversations with mostly people who are very pro-Bernie, some people who are like wildly disaffected, who I maybe brought somewhat towards Bernie, including one Yang voter. And then I talked to one kind of MSNBC liberal who was in like a very nicely redone colonial house in New Bedford. And she was like, oh, I am not voting for Bernie. I was like, oh, what's up? She's like, well, let me give you some logic about Russia. And I was like, all right, buckle up. (laughs) Well, I I didn't quite, it it was a little illogical, was the funny thing. Uh, Because I was like, well, doesn't it, 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 we're talking about this like foreign disinformation campaign, isn't it more curious the domestic disinformation aspect that this was leaked the night before the Nevada caucus? Um, She's like, no, no, it's all part of Putin's plan, basically. "Mm." I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader. 
edited by Bill V. Mullen and Christopher Viles. Since the birth of fascism in the 1920s, well before the global renaissance of white nationalism, the United States has been home to its own distinct fascist movements, some of which decisively influenced the course of U.S. history. Yet, long before Antifa became a household word in the United States, fascist movements were met time and again by an equally deep anti-fascist current. Many on the left are unaware that the United States has a rich, anti-fascist tradition, because it has rarely been discussed as such, nor has it been accessible in one place. This reader reconstructs the history of U.S. anti-fascism in the 21st century, showing how generations of writers, organizers, and fighters spoke to each other over time. The U.S. anti-fascism reader, edited by Bill V. Mullen and Christopher Viles, out now from Verso Books. Um, I think we're gonna uh, take some take some questions. Hi, I'd like to invite the panel to share canvas tips when you're talking to voters about specifically single payer. Like if someone says, "Well, Elizabeth Warren's public auction is also a really good way to give people health care." I know what my answer is, but I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts. Oh, should, should we just do one one at a time? Yeah. Um, well, um, actually, my my canvassing experience is just saying yes. I, I'm concerned about healthcare too. You know, I think Bernie has a great plan. You know, I think Elizabeth Warren's really strong on the issue too. But I think Bernie is better because it's he made it you know a centerpiece of his his proposal, and he's really shifted the the public conversation on single payer for the last three four years. Obviously, anything needs to get passed through Congress, but in Bernie Sanders, we're going to have a really firm and consistent advocate. Um, and then see if they're voting and try to leave and go to the next door. Uh, so I'm not necessarily a good, a good barometer, but I would try, I try to avoid, you know, detailed conversations and, and move on. Um, I'm also really like poorly dressed all the time in the winter. Like I dress like it's September 20th at all times of the year. I'm like sweating in the summer. I'm freezing in the winter. So when I'm canvassing, I'm just, you know, trying to, trying to get going, <laughs> trying to get this over with. <laughs> That was, that was a lot of words to explain that you're actually not a very good kid. <laughs> 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 are like disheveled and freezing in the front of someone's so door. Is like... a, so I don't have a coat. Um, I don't know how I was asked to be on this. <laughs> I, I'm knocking on this door because Bernie Sanders is promised jackets for all and I'm very yeah, cold. Yeah. But, I did, but, I did yeah. borrow a friend's boots when I went to New Hampshire. So I also am in the same boat as Bosker. I mean, the ge- the general thing though that you that you touched on though, though I think is uh, like the general organizing strategy of affirm and redirect. Like you don't want to debate with them. You're like great point. Yeah, like a public option would expand access to healthcare. What would expand it even more though is everyone having it under Medicare for all. Yeah, I mean, I always think just to add to that, the the way I always think of it, and I sometimes don't use these words on the door or something, but like you know, in in union organizing, for example, the the sort of saying is that you don't sit down at the table having already compromised, right? And so when someone's talking about Sanders versus Warren on the issue of healthcare or on several other issues, and this applies for Sanders and just about every candidate on, in general on issues, um, is there's a way to say that, you know, you don't 
you don't compromise from the start. You don't diminish your demands before you've even come up against it. When your opposition is both the GOP and some of the center of the party, you know, you got to come out hard with exactly what you want from the start or else you're never going to get even close to it. Right. And so some people don't like this argument because it's sort of, you know, the idea that it's compromising, you know, people don't want to talk about that with healthcare or with other issues. But I think it's just true. Bosker's point about like having a strong fighter who has made this a centerpiece of the campaign. This is someone who's willing to risk their political career on the issue of healthcare. Um, and it's actually, I mean, what we're seeing, for example, in Nevada is that that is despite all the attacks on Sanders from, you know, from super PACs or whatever about healthcare and the culinary and the culinary. Um, that's right. Uh, you know, healthcare was still the, number one thing that voters said was their issue today. And the majority of them say they're for single payer. Um, so he clearly inspires a confidence in people to turn out and in exactly the type of people and the coalition we need um, to, to win the presidency. So and, and Democrats already won an election on a public option that happened in 2008. And we didn't get a public option. Yeah. So in conclusion, what you should not do is just ramble like we all did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is, this is maybe more detail than you want to get in the doors, but sometimes you'll have that door where you're actually invited into the door and you're like there for like 30 minutes. And some, yeah. sometimes you do get in detail. And one thing I would mention about Sanders in terms of like his proven track record of, like successfully compromising on healthcare to get something big accomplished was that he pl- played the key role in getting one of the most unsung but great parts of the ACA passed, which was the part that put billions and billions of dollars towards community health centers, which is no no small thing. And that was Bernie. Um, and that's a compromise because that wasn't a single payer bill, obviously, but he saw it as an opportun- a vehicle to to get something important done. But, but also, the other, the other last thing is on the point of whether Warren supports single payer or not, obviously a lot of us are very discontent with both the way she presented her financing plan and her path towards single payer, but I think that's like kind of too fine a, a thing to Definitely. to push because if she's saying she supports single payer and yeah. the media is saying she's saying supporting single payer, um, it's difficult for us as Sanders supporters to say only one candidate supports sure. single Leave that pair. for Twitter yeah, or exactly. for like yeah. think pieces, not for right. the Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. And, uh, one other quick canvassing thought, though, that I found very exciting is just like you see it in the polls that climate is finally a top concern amongst a lot of voters. And I definitely have experienced that at the door. People can – this winter is totally dystopianly f- fucked up non-winter. And people are realizing that. And uh, I found that people do want to talk about climate change. And that presents an opportunity to say Bernie has the only plan that's big enough to deal with the scope of the problem. Hi. Um, so I'm a union member here in Massachusetts, and um, I wanted to ask all of you to um, talk a little bit about the conflicts that we've seen within unions um, as part of this primary. So I think there's a you know i think it's happened at like a big scale and a small scale obviously the one that's gotten the most attention has been the one that we're seeing the results of tonight in las vegas between the leadership of culinary uh union local 226 and unite here um with their members and then kind of all of that around the question of you know is bernie trying to quote unquote take away their health care and like what would it mean for them to you know have medicare for all um, and so if you could talk a little bit about that, but then also there's been a number of like conflicts within unions uh, during this primary that have, have not gotten as much, a- 
have not gotten as much attention. Um, like in the last couple of weeks, the IBW nationally um, endorsed Joe Biden, um, which I think it's the biggest union to have made an endorsement at this point. Um, and they did so without any kind of consultation with members. Um, they claimed there was a unanimous vote, which there's plenty of reason to think is not actually true of their international officers. And then promptly, one of their locals here in Boston, IBW Local 222, um, endorsed Bernie, like days after the national IBW endorsed Biden. And within about 48 hours after the national IBW endorsement of Biden, an online petition on change.org by IBW members got over 1,000 signatures of IBW members calling for a membership vote and and, and expressing support for Bernie. Um, And I think that's really interesting because the National IBW also made this argument that, oh, Medicare for all will take away our members' health care and that a Green New Deal would hurt members' jobs when the IBW is actually the union that stands to gain the most from the Green New Deal. Uh, And then I think there's also within the AFT, which is my union, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. But I'd I'd like if you guys would comment on all that. Do you want to start? Okay. Um, so uh, let's see the first part about the culinary, um, and just the sort of general, I mean, the culinary heightened this to the center of national media, this conflict within the, the organized labor movement around universal health care. Um, so generally the argument that's being made here, um, the way I would describe it is these unions have fought and sacrificed quite a lot in order to get healthcare pl- coverage for their members. I mean, the culinary operates, its own clinics and, you know, has a like fairly extensive um, sort of healthcare ecosystem. Um, now they've given up wages, they give up, union members give up all sorts of things in order to ensure good healthcare for their members, right? So this is something that they is hard won, especially in the United States. Um, sadly, um, Sanders has, sadly um, for all of us, um, these unions, I think, are very stuck in a foreclosed sense of the possible future. Um, I think Sanders has been very clear about single payer being both, you know, I'm never gonna sign a bill that takes, makes your healthcare worse. Right. I think he's very clear on this. He even listened to union members sort of concerns on this months ago when formulating his policy, his platform on healthcare and talked about actually transferring what was had been sacrificed in sort of health care towards wage increases. Um, so he very explicitly has addressed these totally justified concerns about members, you know, living in an extremely unequal society with horrible um, health care experiences and family members who've probably suffered immensely without health care, being afraid to lose what they have. Um, anyway, so to go to stop rambling, I mean, the culinary did had the approach of, you know, this anti-solidaristic sense of, you know, we don't care that the rest of the working class, you know, needs this, right? We, we don't want to be forced to let go of something we've fought for. Um, now, I think what's interesting, obviously, there was tons of news coverage about this, about this conflict, the flyers that sort of leadership was putting out about, you know, anybody but Sanders, anybody but Sanders or Warren, as far as advising their members to, on how to caucus. What's interesting is, as far as I know today, at of the seven strip um, caucuses that were culin- you know, culinary members were sort of 
um, represented at, right? It was places where their their members worked. I think the I think Sanders won five of those, um, and so there's a real obvious difference of opinion here as far as what whether working class people actually believe this argument of it's not possible to give health care to everyone for everyone to have access to this. I mean, it's a really encouraging sign actually that members came out so strongly today um, in favor of Sanders. Um, as far as the other stuff, the IBEW, the AFT, I mean, this is, I, I think it's a really, fa- the Sanders again is like, it's this generative productive moment um, for the labor movement because it's actually forcing people to take sides in, because there are things at stake, right? Labor is so not used to having sort of anything at stake as far as um, progress and gains to be made in these ways of um, whether it's single payer, you know, going on the offensive basically. And so I think we're seeing, you know, the different wings of labor actually play out. I, I, I find it, I mean, as a fellow union member, um, it's actually a very educational moment for a lot of people. It provides a way to sort of talk about unions and what sort of our, how unions build towards universal institutions um, for the working class. And so I think it's like, you know, it's wonderful to have an excuse to be able to actually talk to people um, who maybe their sense of a union is like watching The Sopranos or something. And that's the extent of what they know about a union. Um, Those yeah. unions are also cool, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was it was really undercovered that IBEW petition that I think it was like 2000 signatures from rank and file members within like 24 hours. Um, so I don't know the latest on that. Um, but I think what we saw and what we're still seeing is a lot of unions are, if not endorsing, then they're like, you know, spending a lot of time sort of waiting to see how things shake out. And I think we can expect that as much as we would wish that it was, you know, we're all going to pressure unions to actually like have a democratic endorsement process. But I think what we're actually going to see in practice is a lot of this sort of sitting on the sidelines from leadership. Isn't it it right that this time around, like a lot of unions that national unions that endorsed Hillary in 2016 held back because members were so pissed off about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that we have to acknowledge, too, that unions do risk something in the transition from a private welfare state to more of a public welfare state. But in particular, it's um, existing, I don't mean to use this word pejoratively, but the existing union bureaucracies might be risking more than average um, workers. Um, Oddly enough, I think public sector unions might stand to risk the most. Um, especially with um, national right to work for public sector um, unions, um, and the idea that that you know, I, I think that a lot of unions feel like their only appeal to workers is this transactional appeal. That you know, if you're with the union, you're going to have access to certain um, benefits and rights. Um, if you're not in the union, you won't have access to these rights. You should unionize. Nevada is a right to work. Uh, state. It's a particularly difficult place to organize. Obviously, um, the you know culinary union staff and its leaders have done an incredible job and know what they're doing and and know how to how to engage in politics. That's one reason why the um, kind of infantilization of um, union leaders have a lot of power and experience organizing was kind of the the worst you know part of this whole episode. Oh, you know, Sanders supporters on the internet targeting um, vulnerable. Uh, Latino, you know, women. That was like part of the, you know, uh, pitch, which is you know, obviously not, not the case. Um, so I, I think that we we have to um, make the case for these broader universal goods, and also make the case that, in fact, we think this can make unions stronger. That this could, as Alex was saying before, this could take 
uh, bargaining that was just happening for benefits turned into wages, um, that this could, in fact, create uh, a culture where unions are a more important part of our, of our society. And hopefully we'll take this logic all the way to having a system with centralized bargaining and, and all these other things that seem like fantasies uh, today, but uh, are the bedrock of any existing you know, social democracy that we've seen around the world or successful ones. You, you just brought up something that reminds me of something I did want to talk about briefly, which is like the reemergence of the whole Bernie bro thing and why now? Because it was actually remarkably not really a thing the way it was in 2016 until very recently, first with the culinary thing that Warren and Klobuchar and maybe others, I think Biden too, jumped on. And then that like surreal Bloomberg ad with like David Cleon's lists. <laughs> why, like, why, why, why now? <laughs> why is it, why is it back? Do you have a good theory the bro- are there, are, It's just the bros are back? You know? I, I, I yeah. see it as a sign of desperation, but yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's a desperation. Also, like, they don't really know what they're doing. These comms people are in their own little bubble. Um, they're in the same kind of professional bubble as like a lot of journalists and other people. And they think the internet's a lot more important than it is. And they think these little insular fringe debates are a lot more important than they are. And now they're investing money and energy and they're telling their candidates um, even really smart ones like like Warren to to go talk about this instead of talk about you know she's a you know for all her faults she's a constitutional law professor she could talk about a million other things but instead she's talking about Bernie Bros on the internet um, and I think that's a mistake and it's coming from a small little cast of people that have been hired to do their job and they really have no idea uh, what they're doing. They're sick and tired of being owned on Twitter by Natalie Shore. <laughs> um, okay, next question. Hi, everyone. Uh, I spend most of my time thinking about scenarios endlessly uh, of what could go wrong. Uh, And then I canvas and I feel much better. Uh, And so I think I was struck by, uh, I forget whose comment, uh, that uh, the establishment is going to try to turn Bernie into a regular Democrat. And amazingly, the status quo uh, Republican Party has kind of turned Trump's policies into just the regular status quo. Uh, And so... I think uh, if that happened to a President Bernie Sanders, that would be hugely demoralizing to me and probably to everyone in this room. Uh, And so what is uh, inspiring to me is how Bernie was able to deal with uh, the establishment uh, as mayor, where uh, the city council just blocked him at every uh, twist and turn. Uh, He was unable to confirm any of his cabinet people in the city of Burlington in his first year as mayor until he uh, and his volunteer army just squashed the uh, machine uh, in the off-year city council election. I strongly believe that we will have to uh, mobilize the volunteer infrastructure that's been knocking four doors per hour or something like that in New Hampshire uh, in the 2022 midterm elections uh, so that the second two years of the Bernie Sanders presidency could get us something. Uh, But what do you think the left should be prepared to do in the first, uh, hopefully, two years of a Bernie Sanders presidency? Yeah, this is a tough question. Um, Well, I think for starters, the real thing is, do we consider ourselves part of the governing coalition or outside people offering critical support? I think depending on what part of the left we're we're in, depending on what kind of organizing we're doing, we'll have to conceive of ourselves 
um, differently. Um, you know, I'm all in for being a propagandist for, for Bernie Sanders. So I'll just say, I'll, I'll, no. I'll do that. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I'm it's shocked. Just kind of, yeah. I just realized, shocked yeah, just I just, made. I'm kind of a conformist at heart. I feel like, yeah, I, I used to, used to think I, I wasn't, but yeah, yeah. But, um, but I, I think that for starters, we use, like Alex was saying before, the bully pulpit of the presidency. Your president wants you to join a union. Your president wants you to do that. There's that plus executive action. Plus the fact that when there is, like, we're, we're going to have to deal with properly divided government, even if uh, Democrats um, are in both both houses, it's a not going to be a filibuster-proof majority. It'll be like tops 50 senators and the, the tiebreak being cast by Nina Turner or whatever. <laughs> but um, just kidding. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think that, that we'll have to say... We are being hurt by the Democratic and Republican establishment. We'll have to strategically discipline certain Democrats. And if other Democrats want to play along, we'll have to be like, yeah, Chuck Schumer, you're, you're part of the revolution now if you vote yeah, the right well, way. Well, um, welcome, you know, Conrad, Conrad, Conrad I don't want Chuck. To do. Yeah, yeah, that might be a step too far for, uh, for even me. But, but you know, the, the scope for what we're doing is very limited. And to translate this into... Um, you know, the language of the rest of the world, it'd be like running an extreme minority government. You know, there's, 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 we can't expect to actually be able to pass uh, legislation in the short term. Um, your guess is as good as me, but luckily the imperial state um, has grown so large that by executive order, a lot can be done. And luckily, especially as it relates to foreign policy, um, there's a lot that can be done by Senator Sanders, uh, President Sanders, to undo a lot of the damage that the U.S. has done around the world, at the very least, you know, prevent the U.S. from causing more harm. And that in itself would be a massive victory for the left around the, around the world. And, and the way the fights shape out in the, next, in the first two years of a Sanders administration will be very important to shaping how 2022 midterms play out. Like there might, it might be a moment where we do kind of like a, a left-wing version of 2010. Maybe. Maybe that's too optimistic. I don't, I don't even know what the map looks like that year. So. <laughs> but one way to also put it is that, and I think this is a more succinct version of what I was getting at before, uh, was that we, our job on the left is not necessarily to write policy and be in Washington. Our job is to cr- change the conditions through politics in which policy is written. Uh, and there is a danger that if the only forces pressuring and shaping Sanders are to his right and there's no independent left or organization on its on its his left then you know the it'll he'll just drift towards the center which i think will be bad in just narrow electoral terms i think people won't want that from him um and i think it'll limit the possibilities of a Sanders uh, administration yeah i was going to basically add that point to this which is that you know i think a lot of people um, a lot of, uh, at least people who talk about politics professionally and stuff, they see someone being critical of a politician and they think this is condemnation, right? I think we have to be very clear about what mass mobilization actually looks like um, and what it's going to take to force through, um, whether it's Medicare for all or whatever the, poli- again, whatever policies are being sort of forwarded by the administration you know, there's, it's just the, it's true that there is nothing as powerful as having millions of people sort of vocally in favor of these policies, right. And in the streets and 
organizing at their workplaces in in favor of whatever it is, Medicare for all or anything like that. Um, so I think like an extra parliamentary or however you want to term it um, in the United States context, um, uh, the left is going to be critical um, to not just sort of integrate itself with the Sanders administration, but actually like critically support it and actually push it because there's going to be so much countervailing pressure on Sanders. Like this is someone like how big is a U.S. senator's staff? I mean, bigger than Jacobin's staff, but not enormous, right? The, the, the size of his staff, if he's the president, is just astronomical. And so sta- like staffing it will be important, but having the movement and power outside to make sure it's staffed correctly is critical to make sure it's staffed correctly, I think. But also in keeping it honest. Right, I mean, exactly. this is the same dynamic that what we don't want, and again, this is a horrible comparison, and I don't really mean it, but when you know when Obama gets into the White House and the anti-war movement dies um, because the Democrats are now in charge, um, that's an obvious simplification of what happened, but it's not entirely untrue. Um, and so, what I personally would hate to see would be, yeah, a sense that everyone can shut up now um, because we have the right person in the White House. I think we're Sanders is very clear on this, and everyone around Sanders and you know in the movement, I think understands this very well that actually we are the power um, and Sanders can only do so much. So I think just, again, the sense of actual mobilization towards the goals um, is going to have to still exist. Any more questions or should we wrap up one more? Oh, three more. Um, all right. Let's uh, make it rapid. <laughs> maybe just have all three. Asked. Yeah. Maybe yeah. three. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, my question was, frankly, very similar to the prior one, but I just want to uh, ask for a little more detail in a sort of personal way, which is uh, I think one of the things that brings all of us together here is a sense that everything is bad and obviously unjust and we should do something. And I think what's special about this moment is that like, with Bernie running for president, there's a very easy, simple answer to what we should do. We should go out and knock on doors, right? Like, we know right now how you can actually be part of the change. Um, and we wake up after Bernie gets elected, woo, um, and that's awesome, but it also sort of like steals that concreteness from the movement. And I guess just like, like in order to build that like sort of like force on the left that keeps Bernie like on the left wing, um, like what do we actually have to do to continue to see these problems as like concrete and solvable instead of going back to just like the amorphous plot that politics is. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one great thing, oh yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, so thank you. Um, Bernie is in San Antonio, Texas, uh, having a victory rally, apparently smart enough to actually go to Texas rather than stay in Nevada, which makes it possible for him to do two rallies in Texas. And he's been declared the winner in Nevada, as I think you already know. Um, I went to one of the only dental clinics in the Boston area that accepts mass health for dental care to see um, a dentist who's actually the new director of the clinic a couple uh, on Friday. And as I was leaving, I showed him my Bernie Medicare for All pin, and he said, oh, my son is in Nevada working uh, for Bernie Sanders for the caucuses, and he paid his own way to get out there. So I just... Thought I'd share that. But what I want to ask about is this, and, and Bernie's talking about in his speeches now, whereas uh, Buttigieg 
uh, who gave a speech just prior to this where he talked to, he's sort of trying to present himself as the center-left candidate now, not the moderate. So he's going to get everything but those extreme leftists that Bernie is allegedly appealing to. Bernie is smart enough to talk about the coalition uh, that's helping him, uh, you know, achieve the results that, he, that, that, that are being achieved. So, I, I mean, the idea that this is, I keep hearing people say, we're going to take power, we're going to take power. And it's a little troubling to me because I think, first of all, we aren't going to take power. We're going to have a share, we, a, a diverse body of people with some different ideas and different organizations and institutional um, strengths are going to be sharing power. We're not going to have all the power, and I'm not sure we should aspire to have all the power, maybe enough to get done the most important things we'd like to get done. And I'd, So I'd like you to speak to this idea of, of speaking to larger groups of people, the people who do co- think of themselves as maybe not socialists, and, and, and building a coalition and sharing power, but not acquiescing to a, a co-opted a version that would be a repudiation of what Bernie Sanders uh, represents for, for many of us. Thank you. Last question. Thank you so much. Um, as eminent members of the uh, new left media landscape, um, I was curious if um, you're seeing this the success of left media push ma- more mainstream outlets to cover the topics that um, have made y'all successful and have fans. All right. Yeah, why don't you actually answer some of those? Some of those seem like... Um, yeah, so, so a few thoughts. One is like what, like in terms of what we do the day after. I mean, I think that labor organizing is going to be key, and that some of the things that we've seen, particularly from like the like workers in the care economy, nurses, teachers, that's where we've seen real strike militancy in recent years. And the question is like, can the opportunity of Sanders in the presidency increase that in terms of like what people in this room do? who maybe are in a particular union are not. One, one thing that has come to mind, because I've been canvassing constantly, is that hopefully, like, I mean, that this campaign has taught so many people how to canvas. And I don't want to stop knocking on doors. So I'm going to keep knocking on doors. I don't know exactly for what. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the weekend after You're Sanders be a inaugurated. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to be trespassing. <laughs> um, just trying to hang out with strangers. Is that is that wrong? <laughs> Um, and then in terms of, um, like, the coalition, I do think that's an important point that Bernie, like, Buttigieg is out there being, like, very co- – talking about the the voting public in the media's ideological lane category. Like, I'm going to bring the right of the left lane and the center lane and the right lane all together, which is not actually, fortunately, how people think. Bernie's talking about people. He's like, we're going to bring working class people together, gay Americans, straight Americans, white Americans, black Americans, Latino Americans, Native Americans. He always has, he's talking about a coalition of actual people, not like abstractions of people. And I think that's important. And then um, in terms of left media, I mean, it's definitely like I started my podcast three years ago as a total fluke after I got mercifully laid off from like my 10 month stint at Salon, which was a nightmare. Um, um, though I did get to write a lot of pro Bernie stuff, which is, I think how I first ran into With the you. craziest headlines. I know. It's just like, yeah, click, yeah. I was writing the pro Bernie clickbait uh, for salon and kind of loving it and kind of hating it. 
and then just started this podcast and uh, did not expect it to be able to make a living from it. And the fact that there is an audience for a podcast like mine does speak for a change of the media landscape. But in terms of like how that has impacted the the mainstream media, I mean, I think like Liz Brunig getting hired at the New York Times shows that they're like, oh, we need like some like Bernie people on the masthead and like writing in the op-ed section. But it's been pretty slow because Bernie almost got so damn close to winning four years ago. And the op-ed page is still so hostile to Bernie. And then op-ed page aside, more generally, like like the reporting in the mainstream media, there's a whole all kinds of reporters who are dedicated to understanding the right wing in all of its nuances, the religious right, the Grover Norquist, fiscal right, all, all of all of like the the, the, the rainbow coalition of the, the America's freak show right wing. Um, and and no almost no one in mainstream political reporting understands the US social the the actual radical socialist left. No like they have no clue. They understand that they're people who are into Bernie and AOC, but in terms of like I don't know, there was like an article about DSA the DSA convention, the times that was long and pretty good, even though they like misspelled my partner's name in it. But yeah, I don't know. Um, like, yeah, they, I mean, they, don't, they, don't really have, have, they don't really have Trump people either, though. I mean, like never yeah. Trump Republicans just exist on op ed pages, not in the real right. world, as far as I, I can tell. Right. But they do. But they do in the news section study the right wing a lot. I mean, I'll just speak to this question um, in my personal experience of how the mainstream media works. Um, it's not, I mean, sure. It's great that there are occasionally a couple of socialists hired. The, the motivation for that is because it's a business decision. Um, I, I, when I write for Vox, they tell me how many clicks I get and they say, see, so it's, that's why we, you know, it's very clear that that's why we keep asking you to write, um, is you are, we have niche markets that we're trying to advertise to, to, and we don't have anyone that can speak to the people that click your stuff. So we're going to hire you uh, so we can get those clicks. And so again, like the, the media does operate like a business and that's what most of these decisions are based on. There is some level of like ideological sort of coherency or like um, justification that needs to be had. So, you know, when you see a hire like Liz at the op-ed section of the New York times, part of this is about, it's it's both mixed with the business decision, but it's also about trying to maintain some sense of legitimacy to the public. And so if you have a front runner and and yet none of the people at your paper are supporters of that person, then it's very easy to look illegitimate. So, OK, let's hire someone. There right? was one person on the editorial board of how many people who voted for Sanders? I don't know. It was like 20 something people. It's, yeah. Um, but so I just think that it's my understanding of an experience with media is that really focusing on the cracks that do exist in the sort of like room to maneuver is a huge waste of time um, for the most part. Um, there's a reason that I think all of us are create um, left-wing independent nonprofit media because we just don't see uh, mainstream media as ever being the home of um, actual antagonism to power. Um, so that is my mini rant about <laughs> left media. Um, yeah. I think as far as what we do next, um, you should join the Democratic Socialists of America. I think that's, that's yes. for one thing. Uh, but I do think, oh, I was going to say, yeah, that was applause line. There we go. Have a those. Uh, laugh line. Uh, Red meat done. to the crowd. Um, so, but I think we have to conceive of DSA as the organization that helps feed into a much broader uh, project. You know, DSA is a 
big organization of 60,000 people. A lot of them are actually working class. We shouldn't fall into this caricature on the right of DSA as just being a bunch of like angry college kids or gentrifiers or whatever else. But it's still not really um, large enough or embedded enough in the struggles of, of working people. So it's kind of like a working class person will join DSA, but just kind of joining as an individual. Whereas in the past, really strong left movements are, are rooted. So I think we need something broader. And when I conceive of what Sanders is doing, I don't conceive of it as a democratic socialist ideological project. I conceive of it as a project to expand and revitalize class struggle in the United States. And I think our battle is not to revive socialism necessarily, even though obviously I think that'll be a byproduct, as an ideological current. Oh, again, that makes more sense for like our particular project in, in socialist media. But the broader struggle is to revive the basis of class struggle in the United States. And I do think we want uh, total power for this, for this movement, um, you know, within legal legal, you know, uh, bounds. We'll have social jurisprudence, you know. Um, but um, in the sense that if you have this class struggle-based movement that institutionalizes itself in a broad-based Labor Party-like thing and supporting trade unions and other associations in civil society, you want to create a governing coalition that can govern for decades. Um, the Swedish Social Democrats governed from uh, the 1930s until... Uh, 1976 without interruption, only a couple months of interruption. And then they were in power again from 82 uh, until they created kind of a financial bubble and messed up the economy in the late 80s and early 90s. But, you know, they, like, this took decades and decades and decades to um, build something. Um, and I think that even something that modest is going to take that long. And we want to create a durable coalition that isn't afraid to say that we want to reshape the judicial system in the U.S., so it's not playing this outsized role and it's not stopping progressive laws. Uh, we want uh, a near-permanent majority in Congress, and we don't need to do what Republicans do to maintain their majority with minority support. We could actually do it because we think that there's at least a 60% coalition of working people uh, in this in this country. And we don't play into the electoral college calculus that says that, oh, we don't care about Mississippi because only 43% of people in Mississippi would ever vote for a Democrat. You know, this is, we want to organize everywhere in working class communities. We want local offices in working class communities in like projects. Like Jackson, Mississippi. Exactly. We want, we want precinct ward captains in, in, in projects uh, uh, organizing people, even if the mainstream um, political operatives think, oh, you know, these are voters that won't turn out in a general election or whatever else. We're, I think we want this this deeper form of, of organizing that's going to last for a very long time. And as far as left media, I think that there will eventually need to be a mass form of left media that is, in fact, the mainstream you know, media. You know, um, we, we are um, the alternative media because we have a very small uh, segmented audience, but our goal has to be to become the national paper or the big YouTube channel, whatever it is in the future, that I hope it's not a YouTube channel, but, um, <laughs> um, you know, that, that um, ordinary working class people are, are reading every day. I think uh, Jackman has a small role to, to play in it, the way, let's say, a, a National Review or even those little Hayekian journals before it uh, played into feeding into a broader conservative movement. You know, we had this, uh, <laughs> this role, um, but... You know, we remains to be seen. This is like maybe year like three of a thirty-year project, hopefully. 
I just want to add to this um, as far as the question of what to do the morning after Sanders is elected. Uh, God willing, that happens. Um, I just, instead of giving an answer, because of course I don't have the answer, um, I just want to relate two things uh, that the Sanders campaign has done in these early caucus states that I think point to the sense of deep organizing that Bosker is speaking to. And then I think um, we all, for the most part, are in agreement is, you know, is required to sort of implement the world we want and to actually win it. Um, one is today the, you know, in the in Nevada caucuses, um, there was this last minute organizing by the Sanders campaign of cab drivers, taxi drivers. Um, and, there were a bunch of DSAers involved. There were a bunch of people who were union organizers who'd gone out to Nevada um, to help with the final push. Um, and they, the cab drivers, you know, at least according to the people that I know who were helping do this organizing, you know, they're like, they won us this one of these caucus sites, you know, because we invested the time and energy into immigrant workers who, um, you know, had sort of been, they work incredibly long hours. There was this sense of like, these are not the target voters that might like, you know, other campaigns might prioritize, but the Sanders echoes what happened in Iowa. Yes. And so the other story I was just going to say was this was exactly what happened in Iowa with the satellite caucuses, um, of meatpacking workers in sort of these smaller industrial towns in Iowa. Um, it was, you know, immigrant workers who worked the night shift um, work normally wouldn't have had a chance to vote, but this time there were satellite caucuses and the only campaign to organize them, the only campaign to stand outside of the, of the plant at midnight until three in the morning every night for a week and talk to these workers was Sanders, the Sanders campaign. And there's a reason that it was socialists and it was, you know, whether it's, I mean, some of the people who were doing that were DSA members, some of them were union organizers, plenty of them think of themselves as socialists and because they were prioritizing not only the here and now of a handful of votes, which they thank God got and actually made a huge difference and was a really powerful start to that, to the Iowa, to what was going to be a disaster of a day ultimately that we didn't know. Um, but because what they were also doing is saying, scarred. is saying, look, if we're trying to reorganize, we want a reorganized working class. We want actual people to have a sense of power and dignity over their own lives. This is how it starts. And it starts by actually organizing making sure every cab driver has a sense of what's at stake in this election and actually what their rights and abilities and duties are in the country and can actually win more and more. And, and, you know, that's the sort of organizing that I think we, I certainly believe has to continue long after there's a presidential campaign. Those are, that's exactly the coalition that we all need to be building up. Um, And so I would just say, you know, it provides sort of this, this great example of, um, what this deep organizing will have to look like and will look like. And, you know, it's a very exciting moment to actually see it starting to happen. Wow, that is such a great point. And I'm going to close out the show, but don't get up and leave when I do that because Jacob, I'm going to turn the mic over to him. Uh, Alex Press and Bhaskar Sankara, thank you very, very much. Alex Press is Jacobin's assistant editor. Baskar Sankara is Jacobin's founding editor and publisher. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after thanking the bourgeoisie for once again simplifying class antagonisms, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point 
is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or wherever else, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly helps do that for us is you telling friends, family, whoever about the show and why you like it. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep our operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.